1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the new books network. I define success as knowing your core values and then having a life that allows you to live in alignment with them. It's, it, it's as simple as, and as hard for some as is, is that. So for me, like any climbing, any goal should work in service of your core values, not the other way around.
0: That was Brad Stolberg on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of ACT Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on ACT Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown. I'm here with Brad Stolberg, an expert on performance, well-being, and sustainable success. Brad's work has appeared in lots of impressive outlets, and he is contributing editor to Outside Magazine. Brad is a co-creator of The Growth Equation, an online platform dedicated to defining and attaining a more fulfilling and lasting success, and he's also co-host of The Growth Equation podcast. And we are here to discuss Brad's recently published book, The Practice of Groundedness, a transformative path to success that feeds, not crushes, your soul. Welcome, Brad.
1: Hi, Al. It's so good to be here.
0: Okay, so I wanted to sort of go right for the jugular and dive right into your history here, because I think it sets the context for your book. So if you're okay with that, I'm going to get personal. So you write, and you talk pretty freely, that while you were promoting your previous book, Peak Performance, you had your first panic attack. I mean, you were literally selling success when things kind of fell apart. So I was hoping that you would share with us how that experience really led you to the ideas that you explore in this new book.
1: Yeah, so um, my first book, Peak Performance, really explores if you're at the top of the mountain and everything is clicking, how to try to stay there and how to try to maintain that level of performance. And I stand by everything in that book. It's highly researched and defensible. I hadn't yet had an experience in my own life where the whole foundation of the mountain started shifting and cracking until I had that panic attack and what ultimately was an obsessive compulsive disorder diagnosis. So that led me on a path to trying to understand what it might look like to have a more sustainable foundation of the mountain. It is also born out of the fact that, well, let me step back. When I was in the thick of OCD, there was no intellectualizing anything. It was just like suffering and trying to get out of suffering. Once I started to see the light at the end of that tunnel, then I became fascinated with the overlap of modern science and ancient wisdom on what it means to have a solid foundation. Um, And that started this intellectual journey into trying to identify patterns that might underlie what I call groundedness.
0: Yeah, so just a quick applause of your book because it is a very amazing integration of modern science, ancient wisdom, your knowledge about sports psychology and business success. And I think that makes a really compelling case for this concept of groundedness. I wonder if you can kind of define what is groundedness.
1: Right. I love mountains. So I'm going to go back to using a a mountain as a metaphor and it works on two levels. The first is if you think about a mountain, most people will look up and admire its peak. And if it's a super steep mountain, perhaps they'll also take note of its slope or what in a climbing community would be called its prominence. But very rarely do people look at a mountain and look down to its base. Yet it is the base of a mountain that is what holds it to the ground for decades and centuries amidst all kinds of weather. So without a really solid foundation, there is no peak, there is no slope. And we humans are the same way. When everything is going really well, as I alluded to, you can spend a lot of time up on that metaphorical peak. But if you don't take care of the foundation, if you don't cultivate a strong foundation, then when rough weather comes you'll be fragile so that's one metaphor the second metaphor is that of a climber on a mountain and you could envision two climbers that both really want to get to the top and one climber is constantly obsessing about whether or not they'll make it to the top They are telling themselves stories in their head of how if they do make it to the top, they'll be able to take selfies and post it on Instagram and everyone will like them. And if they don't make it to the top, what will happen to their identity and who will they be if they cannot say that they didn't summit this mountain? So that's climber A. Climber B might equally want to get to the top of the mountain, but is very focused on the small steps that they're taking along the way, trying to be consistent. They're present, they're patient, and ideally they're even taking some time to enjoy the view from the side of the mountain. Now, both climbers might get to the top, but what I argue and what the research literature continues to show is that that second climber will not only have a more enjoyable and fulfilling time, but also be more likely to sustain that level of climbing and performance. Uh, Because climbing in the way that the first climber does is really angst-provoking and a pretty quick path to burnout. So again, I'm using climbers, but you could replace climbers with business people, with physician, with creatives, um, pretty much any uh, role that we play in our lives where there's some goal. So it's both about a solid foundation out of which striving can be a little bit more channeled. And it's also about the actual striving itself to be more focused on the process than any given outcome.
0: Right. So it's it's a focus on the process instead of outcome that leads to more sustained success. And I mean, one thing that I think is an important piece of the conversation is how do we define success anyway? Is it getting to the top of the mountain or is it being able to stay at the top of the mountain, being able to go up to the top of the mountain repeatedly throughout life? And I think when you, when you think about success as like a one-time thing, it's a pretty different picture. And I think that's where groundedness really helps in that more sustained lifelong kind of success. But I'm curious, just taking a step back, like how do you define success throughout your work?
1: I define it in a very like Stephen Hayes acceptance and commitment therapy way. So I define success as knowing your core values and then having a life that allows you to live in alignment with them. It's it, it's as simple as and as hard for some is, is that. So for me, like any climbing, any goal should work in service of your core values, not the other way around. So a lot of people say, well, you know, how can I use my core values or what goal can I go achieve? And if you have the privilege to, I think a much better way to think about it is what goals are going to, Lend themselves to journeys or to processes that allow me to practice my core values.
0: I love that. What what are your core values? Just out of curiosity, how do you articulate those?
1: Mm, so there used to be a lot, and then there were a handful. And it's funny every every year because I really try to practice what I preach with my own therapist and coach, Brooke. I go through this exercise, and we'll be doing it again. I think we do it in like March. It's not a January thing. But um, last year, it was as simple as life and love. And for me, life encompasses all of the doing and engagement and productive activity that I strive for and creativity. And then love is about the being side or presence in creating space and relationships. So, that means a lot to me. I think if someone was just meeting me, it would probably, I would say that under life would fall physical health, creativity, and under love would fall vulnerability, authenticity, and community.
0: Yeah. Which are, and, and many of those are principles of groundedness, which is fitting. And another example of how you practice what you preach. I have to say that I really love that. I always read acknowledgments. I'm always curious about the support in writing a book, not only because I'm writing my own book, but I just think books are one of these ways to show up as heroic individualism, right? You talk about a, a lot about that. But the reality is that books take an enormous team of active participants. And I love that in your acknowledgments you credit your therapist, which I think is so terrific. And I'm curious, is that how you came to know acceptance and commitment therapy? I'm always curious how people outside of scientifically oriented psychology discover ACT.
1: Yeah. So my discovery of ACT was absolutely through my own being in therapy for OCD. What's interesting is that even, so my OCD experience, like it was very stark onset. I was 31 and I had no prior history of therapy, of anxiety, of depression, at least not that I was aware of, but I had kind of already started down this path of trying to merge like art and science East and West. So even prior to ACT, a big part of my first book was about trying to live in alignment with your core values. So I think it was it was there before that, but then ACT really solidified it for me. And like so many people that have OCD and that are fortunate enough to be working with skilled therapists that understand it, my own recovery was very much like from an exposure and response prevention, like kind of getting through the initial just paralyzing intrusive thoughts and feelings. And then more towards acceptance and commitment to, hey, you're always going to live with some element of this. The, The best way to kind of have it go away is to stop trying to have it go away.
0: Yeah. And I love too that you, I can't remember if this was where I either heard it on a podcast interview with you or I read it somewhere, but you talked about how even writing about your OCD brought up a lot of highly OCD kinds of thoughts of something bad is going to happen to me and that your therapist really encouraged you to follow your values and accept the discomfort of the thoughts and the feelings. And that was such a great example of values in action um, where you were really suffering, but really committed to acting in line with your values.
1: Thank you. Yeah, that it's funny how that works. And it took a lot of support from from Brooke, my therapist, um, who like, you know, every percent of that acknowledgement is genuine and and earned. Earns the wrong word, just there. Like she's been so incredible, as a really like a coach and in, in all these things. But um, yeah, it's so funny how that works. So I, the reason that I initially wrote about my experience with OCD was simply because there was so much cognitive dissonance that I was facing. I'd had this best-selling book titled Peak Performance on like you know, mental kind of cognitive performance, just as much as athletics. I'm young and I'm getting all these notes from people asking me like the secret to success. And meanwhile, I'm like scared to leave my apartment at that time of my life. Um, so I either was going to stop writing or I was going to need to close this gap. Like there was no world in which I was going to be kind of performance expert to the outside and suffering within. So the first thing I had to realize was that, hey, I could still be a performance expert and be going through this. The second thing was then to share it. And a lot of people, when they open up about mental illness, I think there's like some fear around what are people going to think of me? And I didn't really have that. I'm very fortunate that like, I've never really been in environments where mental illness was stigmatized. My fear was simply, as you said, that like in, in, in the bizarre OCD brain, that if I were to write about it in a way, it would be like exerting control over it. And then it would come back to get me and be like, no, you don't actually control me. So yeah, writing about it became this like huge exposure. Um, because it was a chance for OCD to tell me not to do something and then for me to do it anyways and live with the discomfort that that brought on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And I I know in an email you wrote to me that it was like SSRI is an act that saved your life. And I I just think it really is a testament to the power, both of medication and of treatments that we know are effective. Um,
1: yeah. And the funny thing is it's 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 maybe SSRIs and definitely act, you know, you're a mm-hmm. professional, it's one of those things where like you, they certainly didn't hurt me and perhaps they're helping. <laughs> <laughs>
0: of one. it's hard to know. <laughs> All right, so I want to segue into talking a little bit about ego, because there's, you know, you talk a lot about this heroic individualism. So ego has a lot to do with our drive for success. And so I guess my question is, how do we associate with our ego in healthy ways?
1: Mm, This is such a big question. So this is like the question that not only acceptance and commitment wrestles with, but also Buddhism, Stoicism, um, some forms of Judeo-Christianity. Uh, so this is like the, the million-dollar question.
0: Brad, I put you on the spot to answer it. <laughs>
1: well, I'm, I'm using my lifeline. I'm going to page the, the historical Buddha. Um, <laughs> so I think that the first thing that is challenging for a lot of people, myself included, is to take a non-dual view to this. So ego isn't good or bad. It just is ego is both good and bad it depends so that kind of sets the stage for every everything else that i'll say here and i think that as long as your striving is predominantly driven most of the time by something other than relevance money ego external then it's probably going to be pretty healthy so what i mean by that is you can write a book for two reasons. One is because you want to sell a lot of copies and have people talk about the ideas in the book and be a bestseller and so on and so forth. You can also write a book because you love writing, you love communicating, you love having conversations like this that a book is a conduit to. Yeah. The former is very like ego success. The latter, I would argue, is more meaning success. And I think that so long as most of the time you're driven by the latter, then striving can be healthy. Now, what tends to happen, particularly in today's world, is we're swimming in like this enormous ocean of various things that feed the ego success. So we've got metrics for everything. We've got followers, we've got retweets, we've got likes. Even if you're in a more traditional workplace, like there's dashboards for everything. All of these ways that we measure ourselves that very much feeds like ego. So I think a huge part of keeping passion harmonious or keeping ego in check is to have, um, some really strict boundaries around like what you take in. So I know myself, if I were to be on all the social media apps and if I were to allow myself to check my sales rank of my books, whenever I felt like it, that would feed my ego and I wouldn't like how I feel. So. I think that it's just as much about trying to create surroundings and, and whether those boundaries are like physical or mental boundaries that protect you from swimming in a sea of dopamine and, and ego feeding behaviors.
0: Well, I have a, a few questions about that, but the first is just very practical. So what kind of boundaries do you set for yourself that are helpful on that front?
1: So it's a great question. Um, I only have one social media account. Um I do not, it's Twitter. I never tweet anything about my family, my partner, Caitlin, my son, my physical practice. It's purely like a way to share my ideas and basically like market content marketing. So I don't let Twitter encroach upon other areas of my life that are parts of my ego that I don't want to have be like in the dopamine ocean, external validation world. So I think that that's the biggest one. And then the other one would be around just how often I check. I think like as an author, there's a propensity to want to check, check sales rank, check book sales, check reviews. And the week a book comes out, I just let myself like, you know, binge on peanut M&Ms. I'm checking stuff all the time. But after that first week, I only allow myself to check, you know, once a week when like the weekly sales report comes in. And then with my first two books, I assume it'll happen with this book. Eventually, you just kind of stop um, mm-hmm. because things like reach some some sort of equilibrium. Um, and it's a moving target. I mean, I could be I could be much worse. I could be much better. Um, but I think just kind of being aware of like what are the things that feed that ego striving, and how can you try to minimize those things so that the striving can be more out of like harmonious passion or love or productive activity or values driven
0: right yeah so i love that way to kind of keep yourself in check to not let the desire for a dopamine rush drive it the other question is how do you handle living in an environment where there's a tremendous amount of pressure to to achieve those metrics of success so for example i mean if we're talking books There there was just a piece that came out in the New York Times yesterday which stated very clearly that many publishers have number of followers as a standard part of whether they'll be interested in acquiring a book. Now, the article went on to say that that doesn't actually necessarily predict sales, but still, if you're an aspiring author, there's this pressure to build followers and to do it, and the pressure is so intense sometimes that it's hard to do it out of a love of communicating good ideas. So I'm curious what what your thoughts are on that.
1: Yeah, um, it's a game, and sometimes you just have to play the game. And I think that reminding yourself that it's just a game is the most important thing. So, you know, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, and and that's such a profound example, but. Like Facebook's meta, the the more that our analog selves and digital selves become one, I think the worse it will be for our mental health because we're not meant to compete for 60,000 followers. We're meant to be in close community with the people that live in the square mile around us. And I think that my answer to that question is the people whose validation I want most are truly like physical people that live in my neighborhood. And that allows me to view the social media stuff as as more of a game. Now I can still try to be helpful. I can try to use Twitter as a platform to share good information, but like the number of followers I have, I mean, I could tell you exactly how I could get my follower account to a hundred thousand. I'd start like spewing conservative bullshit, but like, I don't want to do that. So like it's a game. And within that game, you have some boundaries.
0: I love that. Um, the other question that I was gonna ask is you had been talking before, which is this idea of non-duality that you talk a lot about in your in your writing. And I I just wanted to give you like a platform to talk about it because I, I love this idea that many things that we think of as bad or, or good really have some elements of both. And For example, like Twitter is not all bad, Instagram is not all bad, but they have some goodness embedded in them and some elements that can be dangerous if we're not, if we don't moderate ourselves. And I'm just curious, sort of like, how how do you bring this idea of non-duality into groundedness?
1: I think through, well, first just being aware and having some language for it so many people tell me just that. They're like, oh my gosh, like I never knew that you could see the world this way. And it really makes you less of a judgmental person, not only towards others, but towards yourself. Um, so like no one, no behavior gets like just a green check or a red check. There's generally a whole bunch of gray in between, um, the like extremes. Um, so then, how does non-duality actually affect like how you go about and behave in the world? Um, you know, I think you could get like super esoteric about it, but then I think it kind of comes back down to core values, which is okay. So like if something is good and something is bad, what's, what's the expected value and then how does that align with my core values? So if one of your core values was to, um, just completely educate the universe on one topic and that was like the pinnacle for your life, then you'd probably use all the social media platforms and have more capacity to incur the downsides and the costs. Whereas if one of your core values is presence, then you probably are going to leave a lot on the table on social media because you value presence. So, you know, Ryan Holiday, he's a good friend. I love Ryan he spends a lot more time and energy or his team does on social media than I do. And I think part of that is one of his core values is like just spread stoicism as broadly as possible because it can help people. And he really feels that. So it's it's honorable. Whereas I want to spread my work, but I also value like just presence and being. And for me, too much social media encroaches on that value too much.
0: Yeah, yeah. I love that. I mean, that's a part of what I... I, I like many things about acceptance and commitment therapy, but, but it is one of the things I love most, which is that when you when you focus on values and you, and you clarify them for yourself and you bear witness to somebody else clarifying what's important to them, it really does take the judgment out of it because there's, there's rarely a good or bad value, really rarely a good or bad value. People are just making different choices about what they're prioritizing. Um, and I think that really does make a lot more room for us to each make our own choices with a lot less judgment and stigma attached
1: to it. And I think boundaries, again, I'm going to come back to boundaries. They're so important because, you know, in the first month that my book comes out, I am on Twitter all the time. And that's because like, there's, there's, there's this event that's happening and I don't want to have regrets and I want to get the book out and maybe it's 20% ego being relevant, selling copies and 80%. Like, I really believe in the ideas in it. I want this to be a part of the conversation. I want my kid to grow up in a world with less heroic individualism. So for that month, I'm happy to deprioritize everything else and just push really hard, knowing that I'm probably gonna feel like shit, I'm gonna be more restless, I'm gonna be more anxious, and I'll probably have a one to two week period at the end of it where I feel like a little depressive. And just accepting all of that and being like, all right, I'm willing to incur those costs for the potential benefits, not judging myself knowing it's gonna happen, but then being really firm on the boundary having my wife, my collaborators, like hold me to it and then coming out the other side and kind of grooving back into more of what my natural equilibrium would be. So even that's non-dual, like it's both core values and then it's for a given season of life, what makes sense, what are you wanting to do and what's going to get you there at what cost.
0: Right. That's the flexibility to say right now I'm going to prioritize this value and then I'll pivot to something else. But it also speaks to acceptance, right? Acceptance that you're going to incur some costs and discomfort along the way by prioritizing one value, but that you've clarified your value sufficiently that you've decided it makes some sense to do that. It's like, it's like deciding that one day you're just going to do a Netflix binge and eat junk food, but deciding that you want it it feels good you'll be healthy tomorrow and you're going to tolerate the fact that your body might feel a little gross the next day but doing that with your eyes open makes it makes it okay it's still value consistent
1: yes it's so i'm so glad that you said that the example i was thinking about is like if you're someone without a substance use disorder it's like deciding that you're going to have four drinks even if you're going to feel like shit the next morning but as long as you make that conscious decision and you don't judge yourself that's fine Um, you just don't want to be doing that frequently because then you're feeling like crap all the time. So launching a book is like having like 40 drinks. (laughs) It's, 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 it's really, uh, have you, is this your first book that you're working on? My
0: purse. so you're giving me a little bit of insight into what, what to look forward to, but also an opportunity to clarify for myself how I want to handle that month.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I think that something that I've learned is, um, not knowing your, your values or anything about it. I think there is a modicum of just accepting that like you are literally when you launch a book going to swim in a sea of dopamine and kind of giving yourself permission to do it and then just having really, I sound like a broken record, well-defined concrete boundaries for time, space, and then people to hold you accountable. Um, that's kind of what I would recommend.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's kind of an interesting metaphor more generally, like obviously, you know, books are just one example that we share, but, you know, anytime you get to the top of any mountain, it feels great. And there's something so addictive about that delightful feeling that we want it again, but we can't always be climbing to the tops of mountains. We're going to burn out. We're, we're going to neglect other responsibilities. And so having a community to hold us accountable, having a plan of action for how we're going to feel when we get off the mountain and feel a little, you know, Less excited because it's not as beautiful at the, at, on the ground. Um, I think can be really helpful. Just uh, that open awareness of like we're not always going to live on top of an exciting mountain. Just human nature causes us to habituate to it, and we can't stay there because we got other things we have to do.
1: Yeah, and this is this is such a part of the argument in in groundedness, right? Is again, it, it what makes it hard is that like the whole consumer engine runs on the illusion that you ought to always be happy and you ought to always be excited and you ought to always be on top of mountains. Um, 95% of the books, predominantly those written by dudes in this genre are all about like optimizing and hacking and productivity. And if you have that expectation of yourself, always, you're just never going to meet it. And you're always going to be frustrated in whatever supplement or 10 steps to 10 superpowers in 10 days, you know, it might make you feel good for a week or two, and then you constantly need the next thing. And that is like most of the so-called wellness industry. Like it's all a sham. Yeah. And I hate to be like, so, so (laughs) blunt and are there, and I think it depends on how you define wellness, but you know, is there anything wrong with like lighting a candle and using skin lotion if it makes you feel good? Of course not. But if that's the thing that like you're searching for to make you feel good, then you know, you'd be better off working less, not spending all this money on supplements and lotions and having more time to build community.
0: Right. Right, which is not profitable. Um, So that isn't the message that gets gets out there. The other thing I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, and you mentioned this in your book, is that there's certain elements of our culture that really reinforce symptoms of mental illness, right? I'm thinking anxiety, my co-host Diana Hill, who talks a lot about healthy striving, talks a lot about how this applies to eating disorders, that there are certain ways that we almost reinforce things that look like mental illness because that's what success in our culture looks like, right? It's like Mm -hmm. you push, 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 you're rigid, you never give up, you don't bother to rest or engage in community. You just go for the next dollar, the next follower. Um, And so how can we think about healthy striving in the place of mental illness so that success doesn't end up getting conflated with anxiety or unhealthy ways of striving?
1: I mean, that in a nutshell is like why I wrote the book. Presumably it's why you're writing your book. Presumably it's why your colleague, you know, has termed this healthy striving, which I think to a lot of people sounds like an oxymoron. Um, and it's so important to try to like reclaim a healthy way to strive. You know, in, in Buddhism on the eightfold path, which are you know, the Buddha was like a a McKinsey consultant. He had all these frameworks. That's why I love Buddhism, right? It's like the analytical mind in me. It's like a big PowerPoint deck. Um, So the Eightfold Path is a really powerful framework. And people often think of Buddhism as completely releasing from striving and just kind of being. But one of those eight values is what the Buddha called right effort. And it's probably what Diana would call right striving. It's what I would call groundedness. It's what an ACT therapist might call like values-based drive. So the Buddha didn't say like you ought not to strive. The Buddha said like you should strive in a very present, grounded, wholesome way. It's what modern research is called like harmonious passion versus obsessive passion. So there's nothing wrong with striving. To your point, the issue is when the way that striving is framed in encouraged in the culture starts to look a lot like obsession or anxiety.
0: I wanted to talk a little bit about the value of vulnerability, but in a one dualistic way. And and the reason that I say that is, you know, sometimes I think specifically about my role as a therapist and, you know, you don't want to be too vulnerable as a therapist because your role is not to kind of share your own stuff, but you also want to be human. And then in other spheres of life, it's really important to kind of show up and, and be vulnerable. And yet, there are times where you really want to hold back the, the more vulnerable sides of yourself. I'm, I'm actually thinking of a study that I read recently about the early stages of dating, and they found that too much honesty early on was a predictor of the dating relationship not progressing. And so there are ways that you want to kind of be careful about how much of yourself you share. And yet you argue that vulnerability, and I, and I agree, is really critically important for, for groundedness, for living a healthy, sustainable life
1: right so um the first thing is i think that we should separate performative vulnerability from actual vulnerability so performative vulnerability is i read brene brown whose work i love and has done so many good things for our understanding of vulnerability but a lot of people will read that book and be like oh i need to be vulnerable so i'm gonna go tweet about that time that i was up all night or that i'm sad sometimes and the simplest heuristic I have is if you are sharing something because you think it will elicit a good response in the other person, that's not real vulnerability. Like real vulnerability should feel pretty uncomfortable when you're doing it. Um, so when we talk about real vulnerability, um, I believe, and I, I, I still think that erring on the side of more generally makes you feel better, the person doing the sharing and also the recipient. So, um, in my own coaching practice, um, I am pretty vulnerable and I trace that back to a moment that I had. So I'm, I'm going to go back to my own therapeutic relationship with my therapist. It wasn't right away, like mirroring, you know, the dating study and not therapy is like dating, but it's an intimate relationship. So yeah. it certainly wasn't right away. But maybe six or seven months in, my therapist opened up to me about her awful depression. And instead of me doubting her or not trusting her, my trust for her went to 140 because it's like, oh, you've been there. You get it. Yeah. Um, So I think that, yeah, there's probably like a situational you have to read when it's appropriate. But I think like if you want to say something and you're just a little bit scared, that's a good sign to probably say that thing. Whereas if you're doing like this mental calculus in your head, like, oh, is y'all going to like me more if I say this thing that might be classified as vulnerable? That is just ego, you know, mm-hmm. like that's not the right way to, to do it. Now, some a question that I often get asked and I tell this story in the book is, well, what if you're in a professional setting and you've got a team of a lot of people And how you actually feel is completely overwhelmed. Like everything's going to shit, but you can't get up in front of a workforce of 10,000 and say that that's how you feel as CEO. So there, what I like to coach toward is ask yourself what you really want to say, and then say as close to that as possible. So I've had like a C-level client that's had that, that, that feeling and just felt like they were utterly performing. So they can't go say that they're in over their heads because They want to have their team confident in them. But what they can say is something like, you know, this job is so hard. It's more than any person could do. Sometimes I feel like it's too much for me and that doesn't make me weak. That makes me human. And that's why I need all of your help and so on and so forth. You know, frame it that way. Instead of going and pretending to be all buttoned up when deep down inside you feel like you're treading water.
0: Yeah. I think that's such a illustrative example and I imagine that people can take from that example and and bring it to their own lives for a script in areas of their life where they feel like they want to be more vulnerable but they struggle to do that.
1: Yeah, I'd use I'd use intuition. Like just just um cuz I know you get it cuz this stuff is like all second nature to you, but just to be really explicit for the listener, the heuristic is just what do you really want to say and what's the closest thing to that that the situation makes you comfortable saying.
0: Yeah. I love that. Just to go back for a second to the performative piece, as you were talking about that, I I sort of had this thought of, I I think sometimes when people are sharing vulnerable things on social media, and it's not it doesn't necessarily start out as performative, but then once it's out there, there's a an impulse to check: Are people connecting to this? Did I put myself out there? Or and and I think the problem there with vulnerabilities. In-person vulnerability, you get like the immediate feedback. Did we connect more or did we not? And you don't feel left hanging. And so I'm curious what your take is on, on being vulnerable in that more social media or digital space.
1: Huh? you're like really onto something. I don't know. I have no idea other than it's a great question. I saw someone the other day tweet like your Twitter following is not your therapist. Hmm. And it kind of made me think of uh, of your question, which you put in much better language. Um, I don't know; it's a great question. Yeah. I mean, seriously, like that's the <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. the best I can give you. Um, I I think that just being like sometimes these questions, like you just have to be aware of them, right? And then pay close attention to your your behavior and kind of what you get in return and and how you feel in return, because I could imagine that somebody that is suffering from a depression or anxiety disorder that genuinely goes out to social media and shares from a completely authentic place of being vulnerable and then gets no feedback probably would make that person feel worse. Um, But then that begs the question, like, are you doing it because you're expecting feedback? And I think maybe that is like a helpful kind of principle for social media sharing is if you're doing it because you're expecting feedback, probably not great to do on social media, probably better to do with an analog human in your life.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I asked the question without knowing the answer, but I I guess my additional thought is that the function of vulnerability is to connect with people. And I don't think that showing vulnerability on social media is a very effective way to connect more intimately, um, because it is so removed.
1: Yeah, it's not an intimate platform, right? I think if you're if you're sharing something vulnerably on social media because you want to have other people not feel so alone that might be suffering or hurting in the context of mental illness, that's great. But if you're sharing because like you want to have an intimate connection, then I agree with you. I think you're kind of like you know, striving for an intimate connection where it's just not possible. It's not the right platform for that.
0: Yeah, yeah, so maybe it's maybe it's a question too of asking yourself, um, what am I looking for here? Am I looking, you know, to, to help other people feel less alone in this experience? And so I'll share my my suffering in order that other people can get that sense of common humanity.
1: Yeah, and I think again, It's going to be the theme of our time together, non-dual. What's the alternative? So it's not as extreme of an example as social media, but um, something like better, is it better help or better health, like online psychotherapy on your phone. I first heard about that and I'm like, this is the best thing ever. It's going to open up access for so many people then I'm like, are all these therapists going to quit their jobs because they're supposed to be online to respond within 24 hours? And then I'm like, well, it's not the same as actually being in a room with a therapist, but not everybody. So like so many of these things are both good and bad. So like I've done a fair amount of research. I was going to write a big piece about that, but decided not to. But if you have access to an in-person therapist in your community that you connect with, then that is infinitely better than any of these therapy apps. If you are in a community where mental health is stigmatized and your parents won't accept you, if you tell them that you have intrusive thoughts, but an app is like your, your pathway into some normalization, then it is gold. So Mm -hmm. it's not good or bad. It just is, it depends. Um, and it's probably pretty situational. And again, that's a lot more nuanced, whereas social media is probably less effective than something like a better help, but there are probably instances where someone shares something on social media and it genuinely leads to fruitful connection.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it does sort of get into this interesting territory for therapists these days because we all went online to offer telehealth during the pandemic. It was so convenient, but I would argue something gets lost, right? It's like online classrooms versus in-person. Something gets lost, but having it is so much better than not having it. And now that things are opening back up again, there's this kind of dilemma because it's so much more convenient for people. Like you you take up much less of people's time. I do a lot of couples therapy. And so at least one of them is working. And so, you know, they can even attend couples therapy from different places. And yet something gets lost. But right. in that non-dualistic thinking, if I tell, if I sort of remind myself, you know, better that they attend regular therapy than not. And so on balance, this is a good choice. Um, But also recognizing, you know, that if I can get them in, that that would be even better.
1: Exactly. And maybe there's like, um, there's a middle ground too, where it's like they're in once every four sessions, and then the work can be virtual, the other three, something like that. But you're asking such great questions. And I'm not just saying that to like... um, (laughs) To butter you up or anything, but I I think that there's like even a more, you know, meta question there, which is like, at what point do we keep doing the good enough thing? And then the actual thing just goes away completely when in fact, like, no, we need the actual thing. Like, is that a band-aid on a problem, which is why can't someone make an hour once a week? to try to better their marriage or why can't maybe the reason someone's so anxious is because they don't have an hour a week to go to therapy. Yeah. Like if you're in that environment where you don't feel like you have that that time or your commute is so long it's like maybe all the reasons that you have to do the work online are what's actually contributing to the problem itself. Yeah. Um so it's really tricky.
0: It's really tricky. And I do think this pandemic has given us Plenty of opportunities to zoom out and ask those curious questions. It doesn't mean that the answers are easy to come by or easy to, um, you know, put into action. But I think I do think we have an an ongoing opportunity to be asking those good questions. It's a, it's actually a nice segue to talk a little bit about community, right? When we think about success, we often think about individual success, but you argue that it, so much of it is about community and. You know, I started off by talking about how I I loved reading your acknowledgement section because so many of the big endeavors that we undertake require lots of people, even if, you know, there's only one person standing on the podium at the end. Um, But one thing that I was thinking about, (laughs) the theme really is like non-dualistic thinking is that it's the balance between community and being on your own. So you write a lot about exercise and movement. And how doing it in community can be very motivational and I was thinking as I was reading it but I love exercising alone it's like I, I'm a mother of three and a therapist and just constantly doing it's my alone time and just this past week my son came down to the treadmill my youngest while I was running and was just standing there And I, I just had this very strong thought of I want to be alone <laughs> so I, I think um it's an interesting question of like how to build community in, in ways that are nurturing for ongoing health and and sustainability, and then how to access alone time. And I'm curious how you approach that balance.
1: So I think that it's quite individual based on someone's temperament. Someone might need a lot more alone time or a lot more community than someone else. So everyone probably has their own kind of unique set point between those two. And then it's around, I hate the word optimizing, but in this case, it makes sense, optimizing that set point. I think where people get into trouble is if efficiency and productivity is the reason that you're not making the time for community, that's very different than you genuinely want to be alone. So. If I'm canceling plans or if I'm doing everything over text instead of a phone call or Zoom instead of driving 10 minutes to go to a hike or a coffee shop, because I genuinely want to have an hour just to be, that is very different than I'm doing it because I'm looking at my schedule and I realize I can see one more patient if I do this over Zoom instead of drive to meet someone at a cafe, or I can write two more paragraphs. So that to me is like the the kind of red herring to identify. is. Are you choosing not to build community because it's inefficient, or are you choosing not to build community because you're freaking worn out of extroversion and other people and you want alone time?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: In my own life, that's certainly true. When I I let efficiency or productivity cannibalize community, I always feel like crap. And when I want to sit and read a novel instead of hang out with the neighbors and I cancel the barbecue, I feel great.
0: Yeah, yeah. Can I follow that up with a a personal question? So your first two books were written with your colleague, Steve, who I think co-founded Growth Equation with. And this recent book, which has such an emphasis on community, is written as a a solitary author. And I'm curious how you made that decision.
1: Ah, that's what you think. So I love this question um, because people are always like, huh. So Steve is like my best friend, my collaborative partner. I'm on the phone with him. 18 times a day. There is nothing but love there. And the best part about this book experience was watching Steve promote it as if it was his own. And he said he was going to do that. And it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to just go full on shameless mode promoting for three months a book that doesn't have your name on it. And he probably promoted it harder than me. I remember three days in back to like the dopamine C, I called Steve. I'm like, I'm done. The sales rank starting to drop. I feel gross. Screw this. I'm done. And he gave me this huge pep talk and thank God he did, because if I would have quit like promoting, then I would have sold the book way short. So that's been absolutely wonderful. So then the question is, well, yeah, why did I write this book alone? Two big reasons. The first is if you read it, and I know you have, but listeners, there's such a through line in the book is my own experience with OCD and depression. And that is just super intimate and personal and not something that Steve has shared. Not shared, meaning he's gone through it, but Like we haven't had that. He hasn't had that experience in the way that I have. Um, and then the second reason is just kind of the mechanics of making a living in large by being a writer that if you split a book advance, that's half than if you do it alone. And we had two really good ideas. Groundedness was one, this examination of like what it means to be tough is the other. And that book will come out in June. And it's very much like a Brad and Steve book, but Steve's name's gonna be on it, mm-hmm. and I will promote it as if it's my own. So that is the the backstory there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. When there's something so wonderful about writing with other people and then there's something so nice about just leaning into the the single voice the the I that is just easier um but but it's also nice to do that still with like silent collaborators right to have people that read it and give you their honest feedback the brain trust idea which i love and maybe you can even talk about what the brain trust idea is
1: Yeah, it's just that. It's having a group of people whose brains you really trust um, that you can run stuff by that you know will give you an honest answer, even if it's not what you want to hear. And then you'll listen to those people because you trust them. I think in creative pursuits especially, it's so helpful, even if their name's not on the book, to have that person that is in your corner as if it was their own, because it is lonely out there when you launch a book and like going through it with someone else that can help keep you grounded. And also that you can just like have fun with and just laugh at the absurdity of like everything. So I'll tell a story from, and I hope this isn't too inside baseball from the book launch of Groundedness. Um, So the kind of publishing plan and the goal for Groundedness was to get on the New York times bestseller list the first week. And again, non-dual, I'd say 20% was purely ego, but the other 80% was just dying to not have to promote the book so hard. And Mm. if you get on the New York Times bestseller list, it does a lot of the promotional work for you because that's where podcast hosts go. That's where readers go. So it helps generate future sales so you don't have to grind. Mm. And the book had sold enough copies to get on the list. And then the list came out and it wasn't there. So the reason it wasn't there is it turns out my publisher had forgotten to invoice one of the large purchasers for the books. And even though this purchaser, think like a Barnes and Nobles, had sold the books, they don't report the books until the order is closed. And for the order to be closed, the publisher has to invoice them. So the book had sold, I don't know what it was, 6,000 copies the first week, but it only came across as like 4.5 and it missed the list. So if I would have gone through that alone, I would have been like pretty freaking down. The fact that I could call Steve about it helped me get from pretty down to laughing about the absurdity of it all within like 30 minutes um so i think it's not just launching a book kind of any big thing where there's stuff that's outside of your control and you want something badly but so much can go wrong um it's so helpful to not feel like you're alone doing that
0: yeah yeah it helps you recover when things don't go well and and things sometimes don't go well like no matter i i think that that's a really important point that you make again and again in your book which is you can try hard and try well and do all the things that you're supposed to do and sometimes the outcome isn't what you want and that is why focusing on the process is so important because not only because it increases the likelihood of a good outcome but also because it helps you to rebound more quickly um, and so yeah. part, part of the process of having community is is what helps you to rebound
1: yeah it's another area of um, of non-dualism and we can get back to the community part but I know you said I think you said you have three kids you just said hmm yeah. yeah. So we we only have one, um, but it's something I think about all the time in terms of like non-dual parenting is, you know, I grew up like hard work, hard work. If you work hard enough, you can do anything. Well, that's not true. Genetics plays an enormous role. So then what happens? I worked my ass off to be a NBA basketball player, but I'm not, I didn't work hard enough. And that's an extreme example, but maybe it's, I worked as hard as I could to be this mathematician and I couldn't get into the college. Is it, I must've not worked hard enough. That's on me. No, it's not like a lot of like, you know, what you're good at. There's a huge genetic component. The flip side is just to say, oh, it's all genetics. I shouldn't try. Like That's also not true. So it's having this non-dual approach, even to that, that you can do everything right and nail it and still not get there and be frustrated, but that's not your fault. So I just think it's like such an important thing. And that doesn't mean you, you ought not work hard. That gets back to like picking goals where the process aligns with your core values, because the ultimate joy should be in the working hard, not necessarily in whether or not you get the gold, silver, or bronze medal.
0: Right, right. And just to add to the genetics piece, like, you know, the amount of money that your parents have, the teachers that you have, the opportunities, right? There's so many things that are not in your control. And as you're saying, like you can give up if you don't have those things, but actually there's a lot you can do through effort. It's just that you can't do everything. It is that non-dual approach and, and sort of seeing things in context. The other thing I, I just wanted to also give you a, an opportunity to talk about is like community is not just for picking you up when you fall down, but it also can raise your performance. And you gave this really lovely example of your friend Shalane Flanagan and of how community helped her become a much stronger runner as well as the runners with whom she was running in community.
1: Yeah, so Shalane is the best. Um, Like, Well, she's actually the best and she's the best. So Shalane is a four-time Olympian. She's the first American woman to win the New York City Marathon in over 40 years. And that happened at age 36 for her, which is fairly late for a professional distance runner. And for the vast majority of her career, Shalane trained alone, very solitary and for good reason. Her training was super scientific. So workouts had to be an exact pace, an exact mileage, totally prescribed for her unique body, her unique fitness level, her unique goals. And she came devastatingly close to winning these major events, but didn't. And then later in her career, she decided that she wanted to train with a group of other women. And that meant forfeiting some of the optimization of her training, because now she's running with other gals. But what happened is her performance just skyrocketed. And so did that, as you said, of many of the other women in the training group. And Shalane really attributes her New York City Marathon victory to the fact that she stopped training solo and started training in a group. And you, you realize this, I think, in other domains, too. There's some pretty solid research that shows that emotions are contagious, motivation is contagious. And ultimately, I don't know if there's a study that points at it, but like doing hard things with other people is just more fun. And if you're having fun, you're more likely to do those things well, and I think so much of it just comes down to that.
0: Yeah. Well, it's like the equation for grit that Angela Duckworth talks about: a passion plus persistence. They feed each other, right? Enjoying what you do, being passionate for it, it helps you remain persistent in in that goals that you're pursuing.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's about as you said, like you know, the community, the having other people around you. And then back to our prior conversation around like unique genetics, it's also about like finding the right fit and finding something you're good at. Um, this is just a footnote in the book, but I actually think it's really important in, in the, 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 chapter on patience, Um, I talk a little bit about grit and how I think that Angela Duckworth's grit is such a useful concept, but I firmly believe that you first need to have fit before you can have grit. So in my own upbringing... I quit at everything related to math. I quit AP math in high school. Then I quit calculus. I thought I was going to go to business school in undergraduate. I quit. Then I thought I was going to major in economics. I took econ 401. I quit. I quit. I quit. I was the opposite of gritty in math. But in English and language arts, I got rejected from journalism school. I kept writing. I didn't get on the school newspaper. I kept writing. I had countless things rejected from magazines, from blogs, I kept writing. So I was a hugely gritty writer. And as a result, like here I am making a living writing. So it's not that I'm a gritty or not gritty person. It's that I found something that was the right fit for me. And then I could be gritty at it. And it, it it very much relates to this. Like if you just work hard, because if I would have just worked hard at math, I would have constantly failed. So I think non-dual again, the ability to have grit and also the ability to quit are really important.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. So, okay. So the principles of groundedness are acceptance, presence, patience, vulnerability, movement, and community. And so this is my final question. I'm curious, do you think that you've become more grounded since becoming a father?
1: Uh, yes and no. (laughs) On the ultimate Level, yes. On the daily level, heck no. (laughs) I mean, like, there's so much frenetic energy. Um, A, you know, listeners can probably get a sense, I think, that so much of my own kind of philosophy and spirituality is rooted in Buddhism. And back when I lived in the Bay Area, there was this meditation teacher named Will. And often people, and this is right around the time that Theo was born a few years ago, people would ask, you know, how am I supposed to practice? I have this kid. And Will would just laugh and say, well, if you have a young child, you basically have live-in Zen master. <laughs> because talk about not getting attached to what you're doing, to a certain way of feeling, to a certain way of being, to sleep, to anything. A kid comes in and says, kill all your attachments and like be in the present moment. So I think kids are really good teachers. But yeah, day-to-day, it can feel really really frenetic yeah yeah if there's anyone out there listening that is um expecting or has a young child um don't worry about like sitting with your eyes closed for 15 minutes a day like your life is about to be a grueling retreat and also a very joyful retreat um for the next few years
0: both both and (laughs) well that's the perfect place to end so we'll in our show notes send people to your website definitely pick up brad's book it is it's such a terrific again i'll, I'll just say again that it, it marries personal stories yours as well as many other people that you interviewed with science and eastern philosophy and ideas from psychology and business and sports
1: that's it um website and then as i mentioned um i for better or worse and hopefully for better i am on twitter and um, my handle is at b stallberg so just B and then my last name.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much.